HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Shaxbury Cider. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman who has inspired me with the way that they've lived their life, the way that they move forward through this crazy world of ours. Today, my guest is Nassim Alikani. She's a co-founder of Sofre, an Iranian restaurant in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I went to your restaurant and I fell in love. And part of it indeed was the food. And part of it was your just enormous sense of hospitality and your ability to both be a host and be visible and make me feel welcome, but also allow me to be myself inside your restaurant. <laughs> so I, I went knowing something about Persian food, but not um, Iranian food, not a whole lot. And I know that in New York, a lot of the restaurants, they do kebabs. And they're like, this is the food. And in fact, you come um, and bring a different type of cooking to New York. And I'm hoping for our listeners, you could just start and talk a little bit about um, the, the food, the most important food um, of your culture, the things that you feel most connected to and the things that you feel like people really need to know about. Mm. Big question. Yes, I know. It's <laughs> huge. Well, thank you so much for the warm and kind words. It means a lot to me. It's really every day after cooking a long day, I just go upstairs and I see myself as if like, as I'm going up the stairs from the prep kitchen downstairs, I just tell myself, you're not a cook now, you're a host. And I just switch I, and I just become a host. And I love doing this. I, I did this 
all my life. Uh, my mother did the same too. We always had guests. So thank you. It really means a lot to me. But as far as the food you're talking about, many people think of Iranian food as kebab. To some extent, it is. Um, uh, we have incredible arrays of kebab. But kebab for us, at least the way when I was growing up, was our Friday meal, our day off. Our parents would reward us if we cleaned our room, if we did our homework. We would go for kebab. And, and that was like amazing. I was just like <laughs> looking forward to those kebabs. Um, kebab, yeah, it is, it is part of our food. But our food traditionally has been uh, food that has been prepared in homes and humbly and simply and nutritiously throughout centuries. Also, it's been the food that has been provided in courts and palaces. Very rich, very elegant, very sophisticated, very time-consuming and expensive. And over the course of, you know, I don't know, hundreds of years, these two kind of marry each other. And as the culture became a little richer since I was growing up, kind of they merged. This, this culture of court cooking and humble home cooking they merged but they all stayed within interior of the homes and I grew up amazing with amazing cooks around me especially my mother and my aunt and few neighbors and I just grew up with this and can you just you grew up in Isfahan I grew up in Isfahan which is a center of Iran yeah and I would love to hear like what did that house look like and it's a desert yeah city yeah, yeah. so I I'd love to just have you draw a picture for the listeners in words um what was that like what did that kitchen look like what were you eating what yeah. was growing <laughs> it was I, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I do not have that amazing picture of, you know, desert home to describe, but my grandmother had that home. It was a beautiful, large home. Uh, uh, she was a wealthy woman, but by the time I was growing up, there was not much left of that wealth except really, really old and large house that she could barely maintain. So the house had a big pool in the middle and the kitchen was in the back. You do not, it was that court style. The food is prepared in the back and the guests are served on the other end of the house where the guests are. So I never really saw that kitchen except a few times. And when I went there, it was all like uh, with charcoal around and there were, you know, a few women working. So it was nothing glorious. Where I grew up, it was a city life. My mother was a teacher, very committed home cook simple average home kitchen uh, teacher's house but one thing was always there that in a desert of in in my city Asfahan it was a very it was a desert city but it was a beautiful four season weather um, it's the it was the richest part of Iran in terms of variety of fruits and vegetables and the the biggest river used to go through so it was a very uh, we could get anything, but it, everything was very seasonal. Like, uh, you know, you could only eat the spinach at a certain time of the year or, you know, just like the way maybe it was here like 100 years ago. And it was really, really seasonal. So my mother even had to had to pickle almost a, a method like sour her tomatoes in summer because when it would become September, October, there was no tomato in sight for another six months. So my mother had salted tomato in our basement. So I grew up always 
pickling and and harvesting and salting and hanging fruits and vegetables in our basement the way you see it in old movies. And it was always one project after another. We would wrap a pomegranate inside cotton, hang them by, by line so we can extend their life for another month or so. So we, when it comes the the tradition of Yalda night, which is the longest Persian solstice night, we should have some like palm with some watermelon from summer is still kind of edible. So that was like, <laughs> yeah, that's how I grew up with uh, with that mindset of like, yeah, we prepped everything. But there was a guy who was coming and screaming, selling vegetables. Another guy was coming and selling fruits. And, you know, these vendors were going through our town. And my mother had a helper and we would go outside and she would teach me, you know, what vegetable to buy and what is not good. And yeah. And then you cooked by their side. I really, my mother, you know, I have to give her so much credit. She allowed me right in into that circle of everything first I wanted to be there and um, many of my friends wanted to be with their mothers but we were annoying we didn't know much and there was a production (laughs) so they were being kicked out I was always welcomed and and my mother created a little step and I would come up and I would cook and there was no issue of knife handling at age nine she had no problem (laughs) I was just doing everything that I wanted to do and she let me and I'm so grateful yeah and did you was part of the pleasure of it being around the conversation or was it really in just the the zen of creating this food and being with your mom and then eating after I don't I don't really recall it started so early and so young all I knew that it was also a sense of responsibility my mother had a full-time job and uh, it was com- coming summer, and she had these like projects lined up from everything. Like I can't even tell you. Even she would juice her own lemon, and a guy would come. So part of it was I wanted to help. I was the oldest, and part of it also it was really fun because the neighbors would come, and everybody would bring some food, and they would get to work, and I was just in the middle of everything, and I felt empowered. I felt happy. I was looking forward to these summers. And one summer that uh, she she thought I'm old enough and I should learn different things. And she sent me to school and learn English and this and that. And you're like, you have to learn other things. Don't be in the kitchen. I was really upset. I, want, I was fun, those things. So what made me feel like probably empowered, happy, I felt like I'm contributing, and I'm also was le- I was learning. I was learning so much without anybody telling me do this or do that. And then also all the gossips, all the inappropriate gossip. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering about that. Thing. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I heard so much. Yes, <laughs> it's a little window into yes, a, yes. a bigger life, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And you continued cooking when you when you went to school. I mean, it's just been such a centerpiece of your life. Yeah, and. You studied law? Yeah. Um, in in an average mm-hmm. middle class family in Iran, you're a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever, something like that. If you're, And then you marry a rich husband and life goes on. <laughs> uh, that was kind of a mindset. And I did go through the law school because I just also wanted to... I was always into fairness. Like, I felt if I go into law, I can... I can fix a lot of wrongness in the world and in my second year of law school we went to a deposition and I watched and I realized oh my god I I wanted to become a a judge not a lawyer I thought you know by being a judge I can be the best judge and 
I quickly realized, oh my God, what have I done? And But I couldn't say anything to anybody. In Iran, the system of the school is you just go and you finish. There's no switching like here, you can change career. And I could not even say that to my family. And I just, I was just so lost. Um, what do I do now? I was 19 and something, and it was around the revolution. And also, you know, revolution brings a lot of confusion. So I was so lost. Um, in our uh, dormitory, there was a big kitchen. No one would ever use it because we had amazing canteen food and very cheap. Um, so in that midst of confusion, I could calm myself down by cooking. And people, my friends and classmates, are you out of your mind? Like, you know, it's like, what the hell are you doing? There are bullets flying outside. You're frying eggplant. So <laughs> I was just like finding myself comfort in cooking and calming myself. And when I would start cooking, I would forget about, okay, what do I do now? Revolution and then the role of woman and all that. And then what what now? So who cares? I'm cooking. And, and, and that was beautiful. And then friends would come. I'm like, this smells delicious, so let's eat and have fun. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I cooked always. And in working your way out of the confusion, mm-hmm. what was your process for doing that? Because it sounds... Um, it sounds scary to me. There are bullets flying. You can be in the kitchen and you can feed people for a time, but you do need to figure out what's next. next. Yeah. And how did you? You seem to have a very original and determined mind. So I'm wondering how you put that to use to figure out. It's when you are 20 or 19. You don't have this. You were talking to a 59-year-old. <laughs> I was a scared little skinny tweak, uh, frightened by everything, by the revolution, by the changes, by my future. Um, I didn't think. It was life kind of pushed me in that direction. The, they shut down, the government of Iran shut down the university, and there was a two-year break doing nothing, and I cooked my way. My mother gave up the kitchen, and I cooked, and I cooked, and I cooked through parties with uh, that was a way of passing time. I also learned to sew and other things. I learned to paint. You know, you do something with your time. And the question was, when the, re- the revolution, when the re- university is going to reopen, will I be able to study law? And it was the conversation that no woman cannot become lawyers or judges. So to me, it was like, I'm out of here. And I asked my family for help to get me somewhere that I can restart. And my dad sold everything he had, and he basically supported me to come to U.S. Uh, I didn't know where I was coming, didn't have any idea of what I was going to do, or even somehow I just thought the option that I had was no option. And I couldn't, I couldn't be one of those, my, some of my friends. I just knew that I have to, I have to get out, and my family understood, and they supported me, and uh, it took me some time, but I found myself, I was 23, I came to New York, clueless. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what did you do, I don't know if you recall, but what did you do when you arrived? Holy like- shit. <laughs> I, I arrived, um, someone came and picked me up, it was a son of my dad's, he, his dad used to work for my father. And he showed me a map of New York. He said, this is where we are, somewhere in New Jersey. And tomorrow you have to be in university in Queens College. My language program was starting. And you take this and you take that and you take the subway and you take that. And then you get there. 
And I was like, the whole night I sat and I froze to death. Oh how my earth? I don't even speak proper English. I just can like, holy, what did I do with my life? And the fear, um, the loneliness. And then shortly after that incident, I arrived to the school fine. I got lost other days because I found myself one time in Bronx instead of Queens. It was just like a nightmare. But... After a week, he told me I had to find my own place. And, and somewhere near Queens College, I found a little room. So typical story of a young immigrant, a student even on top of it, that the, I found out that the, there was not going to be any money coming from Iran. The government of Iran shut down any kind of money. So I had $500. And my tuition was paid for that semester, but not the next semester, and $500, and I had to figure out what to do. 23 in 19, in New York, 1983. So, yeah, that was a, a real awakening and real growing up all at once. Um, and, yeah, I was, I'm so grateful for all of it. And what did you do? I, was, I reached out to the university, asked for jobs. Uh, I got some reception thing for $5 an hour, and then I realized that's not going to get me anywhere. This is where the nanny job came about. And uh, accidentally in an Iranian grocery, the, the only one in New York City, I found a newspaper and an ad, and I went for an interview, and... Um, that lady was just about a little older than me. I was 23, she was 26. She already had two kids. And uh, she needed help for the afternoon. And in the morning, I went to school. And in the afternoon, I was the nanny. And I was so grateful because of I just suddenly found home. These two babies were, one was four, one was two. They looked at me, and I'm like, oh, that's home. I called that home, and we bonded. I bonded with the family from the day one and they accepted me like like a niece or something and I gave everything to those children um, the boy used to come to my bed every time he wet his bed he came <laughs> and slept with me and I took care of him and yes that gave me a footing in the country plus a saving because I wasn't paying rent and I had a safe home to go to school my English improved I did a lot of cooking for them. I made extra money for the parties. She always found me great opportunities in different events. She negotiated good money for me. <laughs> <laughs> she was really incredible that one year gave me a huge head start in the country. But the f and also the, the, the fact that I never felt lonely. I always felt I had, I had them at least. And I'm not, if something happens to me, there's, you know, I had them. So, and that was my biggest break in the beginning. Yeah. And are you still in touch with them? I lost, I think the family divorced oh. and then the whole thing disappeared. No, unfortunately not. I'm hoping with all this media stuff. Exactly. I'm they'll, like, come, oh they'll come find you. I, 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 I get to know <laughs> them. Yeah. Yeah. I am, I'm hoping those children should be in their forties now. Yeah. And um, did your when did the dream of Safra begin? Um, uh, it's it's hard. It there was never like a big dream. Like I'm gonna have a Sofre like Sofre, 
but this passion of cooking was always in the back. And um, I was 20, also 24 here. A friend of mine got married and she was poor and she couldn't have a real wedding. And she asked me, I want to have everybody. I'm like, everybody, we are 100, our community. And she was like, can we feed them? I'm like, if you help me, yeah, we can. So I threw a party with her with all our help and we fed 100 people in a basement of YMCA in Queens. That day, everybody was like, you should open a restaurant. (laughs) I was a poor student trying to survive, living on minimum wage, people telling me I should have a restaurant. There was always these comments. You cook so well, you should open it. You hear that. Everybody who cooks well, they they tell them that's a wrong advice. Don't don't listen to them. (laughs) But yeah, there was always that. But the idea of like, yes, I can open a restaurant started when I was already very established financially. So what did you do between the nannying and um, Sofra? Uh, nannying lasted a year and a half. Uh, by that time, I was already finishing my, uh, starting my college bachelor and almost finishing. I brought some of my credits from Iran, so I finished bachelor here fast. In between, I babysat uh, I other uh, for other homes. When Fariba didn't need me, I was in different homes. And then eventually they moved to, to Long Island. I had to get my own place. And a uh, lot of waitressing and a lot of uh, any job I could get. I was sometimes working 60 hours a week in between going to school. So I did, I did a lot. I was also working in a print house, a copy store, and I quickly became his manager. And and he just thought I was capable. He gave me more responsibility. I became good at what I was doing. By the time I finished my school, I had met my husband, current husband. He was, we were dating. I was manager of a coffee shop, and he gave me the, the money. And uh, basically, no, the offer came from the owner. He wanted mm-hmm. to open another branch and put me a partner, but I decided to go on my own. And my boyfriend, then husband now, financed my little adventure, and I owned the coffee shop for eight years. It did well. I sold it. I sold it because I was pregnant to twins. And um, in between, I was trying. I was comfortable. We were traveling a lot. We were eating in fine restaurants. And I was exposed to the Nouvelle Cuisine in the late 80s, early 90s, or mid-90s. All these fancy restaurants, Per Se, Daniel, all of those were opening. I was like, wow, let's... And, you know, we were young. We, We had little bit of money so that's what we did we just ate well (laughs) (laughs) and did any of those meals influence um the restaurant that you now have i have to be honest now but they they had an influence on me because as much as i was enjoying this new exposure and learning and discovering all these wonderful new experiences but I was keeping going. I kept going back to where I came from mm-hmm. and making me more reinforced. Every beautifully plated dish made me think of our food, how it can be done. Because to me, yes, great, you know, we ate in such a fine places. And we also traveled to Paris and London and, you know, go, go all over the world and try different cuisine. And my husband is Greek, so Greece, Italy. All of that exposure made me just thinking more and more about the flavors we have that the world doesn't know and how they can be introduced. Right now, these dishes, they all have audience. They are recognized 
ours isn't. So it was always everything I ate. I made a comment and my husband was like, sick and tired, like stop comparing, <laughs> like, let us enjoy this food. So it influenced me more in that way. Yeah. Right. It, it took you deeper into yourself, yeah. Yeah. which is an important journey. And then you traveled, um, you traveled home to study the, the food of Iran. A, a lot of that came later because I was cooking so much from memory and from taste buds and it was getting delicious. And for nine years, I couldn't go back to Iran. So I started cooking a lot of dishes based on what I thought they are. And then I, after nine years, I went back the first time with my husband and a few years later with my two kids. And when I went back with the kids, I went for extended period, two months, three months. They were babies, so we were like, had nothing to do. We were. Then people started bringing treats and marmalades and jams and pickles to our home. And I was like, wow, I don't know a whole lot. So I started writing recipes. I started, if somebody intrigued me by something, I started recording their voices sometimes or go to their homes and ask questions. And uh, then I became more purposeful every trip. Let's see how many more recipes I can bring. Let's see how many more grandmas I can meet. Let's, <laughs> let me see what else my mother haven't taught me. Because after a while, it becomes a routine. You eat the same food over and over again. So, yeah, I did this for about 10 years consciously. And, yeah, I have a huge wealth of stuff right now. I'm wondering if when cooking from memory, did it take you back to a different place? I mean, was it both... You're cooking and you're feeding people, but you're also feeding your childhood self? A lot. Some of the dishes I was just desperately trying to do it because I wanted to be in Iran in that point. Uh, there are some traditional religious holidays that people do certain dishes. And I would come home despite all that hard work. I would miss those traditions that people ring your door, ring your bell, and they bring you a specific dish. And it's just every house does it differently. And I was just missing it so much. So I would make mark those dates and make those dishes. Even And then I would send it to my neighbors. And people like, what is this? <laughs> I was, I was, and, and I would do it purposely to stay connected, um, both in terms of the food, but a more more emotional connection. And what did that emotional connection mean to you? I mean, what is what does that feel like, that sense of loss and then reconnection? Um, I accepted that New York is home very early on. I just felt right in. And, but at the same time, part of me was always as if like part of the roots is somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And by doing these food stuff, Persian New Year, these religious ceremonies, these events, the weddings and all that, or trying to replicate my mother's particular dishes. I was always feeding this root. For me, I was like watering these roots. These roots should not die. As much as I'm making new roots in the new home, which is home, it's New York, and my family, my kids, I feel like I should, I should have fed this. And by doing this, I was in my mind, consciously and subconsciously, feeding my roots and, and kind of growing them together and bringing them aligned somehow. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about Safra, the, the food. If you want to, you, know, you should listen to the rest of the uh, episode, Hungry. The Tadig, we're going to talk about some, yeah. some rice and, um, and also some of Nassim's unique philosophies about life. So stay with us. 
This episode is brought to you by Shaxbury Cider, who believe cider can be daring, complex, and eminently drinkable. Located in Vergennes, Vermont, Shaxbury make a broad offering of ciders, from the bright and fruity rosé to inventive, small-batch wild apple fermentation. Each fall, Shaxbury takes to the hills of Vermont to forage for the wild and forgotten fruit that make up their lost apple project. Shaxbury, producer of the first American-made Pet Nat Cider, continues to experiment every year with limited-edition ciders designed to spotlight locally foraged fruit. To learn more, visit Shaxbury.com or follow them on Instagram at Shaxbury. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. Today, my guest is Nassim Alekhani. She is the co-founder of Sofra, which is an Iranian restaurant in uh, Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. You have to go. Like, let me just say that flat out. Um, well, you have to go if you can get a reservation, <laughs> <laughs> which is the first hurdle. But when you go, you'll be um, the menu is tight and short and delicious. What it means to me is that Nassim had such conviction in what she was putting together that she wanted you to have an experience of um, of the best, what she cared about the most, and not giving you 95 million choices and, um, you know, you flail. It's a feeling of, of comfort being there and knowing that uh, someone has thought about you, the guest, so completely. Um, the, the, the menu is pretty short, and it has some extraordinary rice dishes and eggplant and things that are um, true to your soul and true to your home. Can you tell me how you developed the dishes and how much time are you spending in the kitchen? Because you love to cook. Yeah, I basically the menu is a small, as you said, but the menu is also something I fed my guests over the years. Um, I entertain a lot, 20 plus years, and I watched people in uh, a good host in my view is someone who goes around her party and making sure that everybody gets something everybody has a drink and all that that we all know but then in my case I was not just feeding them I was watching them looking at their reaction what food goes first what dish gets empty what is left what people gravitate what they and expressions are their faces in every party and then make a mental note and sometimes even literal note so the menu is a combination of all of that, plus the food that I fed my family and the food that I kept cooking at least once a month or even sometimes weekly. And my kids keep eating and it never gets boring uh, for them. And for them, if it doesn't get boring and their friends come from soccer game and they love it and they soup down, then that is the dish. So that was my very first choice for the menu, a very elaborate decision of how I can introduce uh, what is the most comforting and welcoming of our culture and also practical um, to my menu in terms of season, in terms of availability of ingredients. So because I was doing it at parties, it was very... Everybody asked me over the years, do you have your menu? I'm like, yeah, I do. Where is it? I'm like, in my head. Yeah. I, I do it every week. I'll, I'll replicate the same menu. It's like, <laughs> it's not difficult. And that's what essentially became in the beginning. We have come a long way since you were there. We have added new dishes, a little bit more complicated dishes. I am bringing some of those royal 
wedding specialty dishes because now I think it's time to get a little bit of out of my comfort zone and um, kitchen our kitchen is so well prepared now to do those, to, to do those dishes as far as my time in the kitchen I'm, I, I'm curious about one thing about that so you have um, two chefs in the kitchen yeah and they're doing your family food so they're trying to match your taste memory you have recipes for them how hard is that I am actually doing still all the sauces oh, you and are. I am doing majority of 90% 85% of all the sauces my two chefs are taking over the areas that I was, especially one of my chefs, the head chef, Ali. He brought incredible knowledge from industry that I didn't have. And that is the treatment of like incredible variety of beef. I have a lot of experience with lamb. I come from a lamb culture. I knew very little about beef. And Ali brought this wealth of knowledge about different cuts and different birds and different that and how the protein should be treated. I am floored by the knowledge he is giving me. But the sauces are mine. And, and, and some of the dishes that my chefs took over, they have a slight, their own, the sauce starts with me, the dish starts with me. We cooperate and then uh, some of it is theirs because like we that the, they take the basic sauce but then they mix it let's say with cauliflower right now we have grilled cauliflower that Ali started from a dish I had was serving in Sofre he took it and and right now he put his own spin on it as um, but still I'm doing all the sauces as far as my time I go first thing in the morning and I have a already a big prep sheet ready for me in the walk-in all the onions and stuff is ready i get to work all the burners are turned them on and i start making all the sauces by two or three o'clock i'm pretty much done the sauces are simmering and they are ready to cool down for the next day service and then the two chefs go upstairs in the serving area and they have a whole lineup. They do the serve. I have never been in the line. I have never served the line, but so they take care of everything. So, tell me about your sauces. Like, what are your what are your signature sauces that you're making? I right now at Sofre we do we have about six stews that are all mine. Um, they, I love them all. One of them, the chicken dish, it was something I fed my family. It was one of the dishes that I fed my family at least once a week. This prum chicken with plum sauce mm-hmm. and saffron. Another dish is a favorite of mine. My mother fed me throughout my growing up years. And my kids, my kids ate it almost at least every other week. Is the little kufte, the tiny meatballs in saffron broth with yogurt. Except in house, we would serve the yogurt on the side. Mm-hmm. In a restaurant, is nicer. We put it on top. And then right now we are doing a, a fesenjun. Fesenjun is a new dish that uh, we are all very proud. Extremely, every Iranian uh, wants this dish. is a is a basically essentially is pomegranate and walnut cooked down about six hours mm-hmm. to be ready. We are serving it with duck in two ways: one braised and one just uh, grilled. Uh, with crispy skin so that is our pride and pride and honor at this point but that may change and right now we also have a spinach prune dish which is again was a family recipe I grew up on it and my kids ate it every the whole winter yeah so you have some rituals at the restaurant that fascinate me because 
it's you what you described right now you go into the the restaurant and you go your prep list and then the um, the burners are on but in fact uh, the way you work with your team is so inclusive and it sounds more like a, a family where you feed them you uh, come together to start the day together could you tell me about a little bit about that yeah we have a very tight prep team <laughs> there are we are a total of four and uh, that we are already a family and uh, my two chefs come later because they stay so late. They come later, but in the morning, I, around 8.39, I get there. Usually I try to be there before everyone arrives to just center myself a little bit. Sometimes they are ahead of me and we all get together. We go downstairs, we turn on the burners, we start basic stuff, and then we sit down, light a candle, and we meditate. Um, I don't know what they meditate, but it just brought so much closeness we all sit together and uh, basically I just thank the universe thank thank the day for being here doing what I love to do thank them verbally for sticking with me which is really hard work really really hard work and uh, we just say you know thank you to each other and we have a breakfast and meal together because I saw that in many kitchens I worked people are not fed well and they eat really bad food because we ju- they just grab whatever they can and sometimes it's fried food and sometimes it's rushed it's rushed through work i want them all to sit down and have like that five ten minutes of morning how can we cook and feed people if we are not fed ourselves and uh, of course we all have a big family lunch but that's later like around three o'clock to cook all day and be hungry it's wrong in my opinion so yeah, we start candle, breakfast, get to work, and then the chefs come, we have the family meal, and I'm looking forward to all that family meal before service. Yeah. I love the way that you talk about how you throw your entire self into whatever your project is. It could be hiking, it could be tai chi, it could be sofra. Can you talk about uh, how you put your passion into what you do and how you make those choices? Um, Food has always been a constant passion from the time probably I wake up in the morning, I think about what should I do next, like the next 10, what should I eat or what should I prep? Food has always been constant, but other than food, everything in my life has had a short-lived time. I um, like, you know, the law school. It took me so much work to get to law school, but it was very short lived. As soon as I got there, like, I was just, that's pointless. But I was also very young. I was a teenager. I did a lot of projects. Um, I always needed, besides daily life, I needed a passion to keep my, to keeps me going. And I did a lot of things. I did tango, I did marathon, I did triathlon, I did, uh, uh, I can go on and on. But I just didn't like to just play with things lightly. Um, I, it's a passion, you take it seriously. It's like a job, and you give everything you have. And it gives you back. It gives you back a joy that it's almost, it, it gave back to me, everything. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you committed to tango to be like a great not a great for my for my level a good a decent tango dancer okay fine you're, hum- you're you have humility as well <laughs> no, no, no. But, or you know in the in the hiking what inside of you do you think charges you to 
um, be as good as you can be? Like, where does that uh, come from inside of you? I think it came from my father. My father always said, and still says, thank God he's still like a, he, he's my role model in a way. Uh, and my mother, but my father, he always said, if you want to do anything, the word is not very kind, but, but maybe I rephrase it in English. If you do something, have something. Don't do it. Life is too short. Don't waste time. Do something else, but do it fully. So his voice is, has always in the back of my head. Why even do something if you're not through yourself 100%? Do something else that keeps you going. And it, it requires search. It requires, sometimes it's accident. Something falls on your lap and you say, wow, this is amazing. Like, I didn't even know Tai Chi could be so exciting. Uh, I always saw, you know, a beautiful Chinese lady, 6 a.m. in Chinatown, and I just thought, how wonderful. But <laughs> I never just thought that, like, a Tai Chi master, would I would meet her one day by accident. And, and next thing, I'm in her class. And that's, yeah. And then you took that very, very seriously. Uh, and how do you know when it's time to end? When I wake up and I don't dream about it, I know that time is up. For not up necessarily giving up. I mean, it's irresponsible. I'm a responsible person. But when that bird is not singing in my heart and doesn't drive me and becomes a chore... It's time to delegate. If it's a job responsibility or requirement, it's time to teach others and from the beginning. And But if it's something like a small hobby, like a hiking or something, you just don't do it. If it becomes a work, and it is work, if it feels like work and you see more the hardship and, oh, I have to go another few hundred yards up, and up in the mountain in a high altitude and I'm exhausted, then why do it? Do you always have something in the background ready to fill in? Yeah, I do. I do always. Um, even with Sofre, as dear Sofre is to me, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been my life dream, and now I'm living it. So fortunate. I am 59, and I want Right now I'm thinking about the dishes I have to introduce. I'm ex I have a list of dishes and I want to do them faster because I know how fragile life is. I don't know where am I going to be six months, hopefully here or six years from now, but I always I have a list of things. I do these dishes, I, I experiment with this and I do that, but then I'm also looking for the successor who is going to be taking care of Sofre because uh, Sofre is it's just as an entity without, it has to be something that even without me will have a life of its own. I see it as a child, like something that it required my husband and I to give birth to it. And now as a child, is an infant now. It needs full-time care and it needs a dedication like you give to your baby. And, but as soon as that baby starts walking and talking, and it's going to have its own personality, it's going to need babysitter, it's going to need teachers, it's going to need guidance. And maybe at some point my role should be obsolete and to the way that it's like a full-time mother being on top of everything. And I start delegating and trusting others to come and take over, just like a mother would. It, it doesn't seem like you have any fear of, of becoming obsolete. In fact, 
in your own restaurant, it seems like you would embrace it because it allows you opportunity to do that thing that's going to be hovering in your in the background. Absolutely, even even right now, the the work I do with Ali, uh, one of our head chef, he as I said, he brings an experience that I don't have, and it's so exciting working with him because I bring all these traditional dishes and he puts his own twist, which is modern and current. And I'm thinking, God, you know, this is so exciting. What? Why I didn't think about it? It doesn't matter. I, mean, I didn't have his exposure. He does, and he's bringing it. And then the co- to cooperation together is amazing. I, I, I hope he feels the same way. And then he he embraces my traditional way of seeing. And then two of us together, we go on a journey. And at some point, we may realize that, you know, it was a wonderful journey, but time to depart or time to take it to the next step. Who knows? Let's talk about gratitude, because it's something that you've brought up a couple of times. Um, And I think one of the secrets to uh, happiness is actually gratitude, right? If you live with gratitude, you're more likely to feel good about your day, your year, your choices. And you have been grateful for very tough experiences. You're grateful for very positive experiences. Mm -hmm. Where do you think that uh, feeling of gratitude emanates from? I don't really know. Again, maybe my father. Again, my father is such a character in my life. He wakes up in the morning and he feeds. He has a crow that follows him. He feeds his fish. He feeds his crows. He goes outside, put food out, he waters his plants, and in everything he thanks the world and universe for being being alive, being healthy, and being able to give and receive, because part of giving is the fact that you already received, you have received that you mm. can give, your basket is full, whether if it's just some bread that you throw for fish. You already have that. So that is something to be grateful. And he instilled that in me. And I wake up like the fact that I'm here, uh, alive and happy. And also the, the, in, the experience of life. If I see the work as, I have to go to work, I have to work, then it's work, it's pain. But if I say, I am doing this because it enriches me, it's the same work, different interpretation, delivers different energy. And How do you think people who fall on the darker side can find that gratitude? Because I think so much in life is actually, um, it's a shift of perception. You know, you can, as you just said, you can do the same work, but if you have the right attitude, the work is amazing. If you have a bad attitude, the work is drudgery. How do you think it's possible to change that mindset? God, very hard question. But um, I look at my own kids. Uh, Some of it is natural tendency of people. Some people are just, look at the babies when they are born. Some babies are smiling. Some people are grumpy. There's nothing you can do about that. Some of it is nature. um, But some of it is by watching and wanting and making an effort. I was not always this optimistic. I was not always so clear. It takes time. It takes years. I I remember my grumpy years. God, my mother said, you know, who's going to ever sit with you? Who's going to even be your roommate? Um, it, it, it takes time. And I think people have to just always 
I love this young generation, this new generation. They are so aware. They are, they read so much. I mean, they also waste a lot of time. But overall, my God, they are so worldly, and they have everything. And I think I'm very optimistic for for our youth um, because I think they are going to take us to a, out of this misery that we <laughs> we it's we are currently living with climate, with politics. I think these bright young people, they, they are going to show us a new way out. And I'm, I'm excited. My little grumpy little girl, she's a very hardworking um, young woman who is trying hard to be optimistic. And she tries hard to see the glass half full. And she makes a verbal conscious. And I see already the growth and progress. And it's, I'm just delighted. Right. I think you're saying optimism is, um, it can be the gift that you're born with, but it also could be something that you work towards Absolutely. every day, that you can't, uh, you can't make the assumption yeah. that uh, optimism is in your blood, yeah. but you can make yourself optimistic. Mm-hmm. Is there one uh, person in the hospitality world, a, a woman, to, who you'd like to pay it forward to, someone who has inspired you? There are so many amazing women. I Unfortunately, I'm a little illiterate when it comes to the industry because I come from such a background of home cook. But there are women I, you know, I've I read Julia Child's book. I read, I read uh, uh, Roseanne Gold and many, many, I, I opened the, every time I open a cookbook and I see often all my choices of cookbooks when I go they are so beautiful if the author is woman I I for sure will buy (laughs) (laughs) that to me is a plus but I don't have a particular name to give one tribute I want to give to is all these home cooks all these women around the world especially the poorer and the more remote region are they make they feed they feed bodies and soul, sometimes with nothing, with some grains and some water. And I have seen it in India, in the rural parts of India. I have seen it in villages of Iran and in villages of mountains of Lebanon. And these women are so generous and they don't even see themselves as anything uh, special. They just get up at dawn and they get to work and they feed and they clean and they do it the next day and the next day. So they are my idols. They are the ones I I think of every day and I thank my grandmothers and on, on all sides and my mother who despite her being a teacher, she always made her meal at 5 a.m. So when we leave together at seven, our lunch was being prepared. So if there is one woman I really have to pay tribute would be my mom, yeah. And uh, I wonder if there's a, a Rumi quote or, you know, a quote to live by. Because I heard you quote Rumi before. And I was like, ooh, that's inspiring to me. Rumi and Hafez are everything every, every Iranian wants to be. Uh, or ev- ev- people who basically get to know them. few weeks ago, uh, our uh, social director... Our, creative director posted something in our website, in our Instagram. I'm sorry, I'm bad with these things. <laughs> she posted a quote from Rumi uh, she, in, in a sense of be the energy that uh, everywhere you go, you bring light with you. And that resonates with me. And, and 
right now, as you just put me on the spot, that's Sorry. the only. No, no, that's what I. It came to my mind because I sent her a note and thank her for this beautiful quote because it's it's very important what we bring to any space, even you know you see a little plant on the side street. Be gentle about it, water it, and be that energy that changes things, even as just watering one little plant. You see a hungry person, don't just walk away, do something about it. And and it starts with the small steps. And yeah, that groomy code really resonates with me. Thank you. Well, Nassim, I've loved um, talking to you on Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much for, for joining me. If people um, would like to follow you or Safra, on uh, social media, where can they find you? Sofre underscore Brooklyn. Uh, also our website, sofreNYC.com. And just come and meet with us. I'm always on the floor greeting people. I love meeting everyone. Thank you. And take her up on it because Nassim, as we began this podcast, is a wonderful host. And as you can tell, she's a, a thoughtful, generous, and kind person as well. You know where to find me at FW Scout on uh, Instagram and Twitter. And if you have ideas of people you'd love to see on the show, here on the show, um, let me know. I want to thank uh, Matt, who's my amazing engineer, and um, also thank Mareko for coming and listening in the engineer's booth. We'd love having you here. And we'll be back next week, so we'll have you listen in then. Take care and have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.